Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, today, we have our very good friend, Ray Bailey, here joining us. Uh, Ray, go ahead and introduce yourself to the uh, listeners out there. Hey, how's it going, everybody? My name is Ray Bailey. I have been a coach for about six years now, six and a half, seven years now. I know Dennis and Neil from actually their very first certification. I was there at the beginning. So it's been some years, man. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been, been five years five now. Five years, huh? Yeah. Crazy. And your specialty, like Neil and I say, you are the strongest person we've had the privilege of ever personally knowing. Not yeah. seeing, but actually personally knowing. When people say, I know somebody strong, we're like, do you really? I don't know if you really do. I don't really know if you really do. It's kind of funny, uh, like the other day, uh, just a couple of days ago, somebody posted uh, some of their friends deadlifting because we've had the lockdown and the post was, you know, strong as strong as fuck. Right. And so these people are doing their deadlifting. And I literally, I was like, no, not impressed. Not impressed at all. I, and I shared it with Neil. I screen recorded, shared it with Neil. And I was like, this is what Ray has done to us. He's completely spoiled it for everyone else where we would have been impressed before. Now we're just all like, no, doesn't matter. Well, yeah. When you, know, you walk by and Ray's doing, you know, 600 pounds for reps with no belt. You're like, all right, that's, that's different. That's different. <laughs> okay. And, and, and and just just for content, context purposes here, people, just a few minutes ago before we started recording this, what did you tell us you you did the other day and you were, quote unquote, weak? What weight were you doing? <laughs> uh, 500 pounds for a five by five. And that's weak, folks. All right. <laughs> so that kind of puts you, gives you some context as to what Ray considers weak. All right. So give us a little background as far as your journey on, on your strength training perspective and things that you've done throughout your training career as far as getting up to these weights. So for me, like my fascinating with strength actually started actually when I was about 14. So my uncle was massive. And this is grand after he got out of serving time. But the first strong human I seen in person. So to give you context, he was benching 405 pounds for 10 sets of 10. <laughs> which, oh, which is that's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Wait a minute, reps of 10? For 10 by 10. Oh, not. shit. How much did he weigh? He, at that time, he was about 275. Okay, still. Wow. Two, six, about 275, I want to say. And he was lean, man. So I was like, what the hell? Like, how do I get that strong? Like, yeah. I'm struggling with like 130. No, I was like doing around 185 or something like that. At 14? At 14? Yeah. At 14. Whatever, dude. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> At 14, dude. You were 14. Most 14 year olders struggle with the bar. Like, they're all like, oh, as their bench pressing it. And you're like, dude, it's just the bar. Oh, they're like, spot me quick. But, but like, it, you know, it, it, that was my first first introduction to like somebody strong, you know what I'm saying? And seeing it in person. So that right off the back fascinated me. So when I was, when I was a freshman in high school, I was benching 225. You know, I got looks from the football coach and was like, Hey man, like you, you want to play football? I'm like, eh, I'm good. I'm cool. 
so going on from there, like, yeah, I kind of dabbled in the strength training here and there in high school, you know, typical stuff, pyramid sets and cleans and all the other stuff, but it wasn't really all that serious. And that didn't really start until I was actually out of high school, funny enough. And so my perspective on strength at that time was just do as much as you can, as often as you can. And I didn't know anything about recovery or any of that stuff. None of that stuff really mattered because I, I, I didn't know any better. And so it um, transitioned into actually starting training. The guy that still had that same mentality that most people have when they first get into it is like, let's, let's, let's just bench press a squat, let's deadlift, let's do this, let's do that, let's do all these crazy things without any real programming or direction of where I was going. And so the more I started to read, the more I started to learn, the more I started to talk to people who had different knowledge bases than I did, the more I learned about programming and this concept of like different types of stimulus and how different types of stimulus create certain types of effects. And so my philosophy for training changed a lot, actually, since I was very since I very first started. With me, in my personal opinion, strength is universal. You know what I mean? Strength kind of carries over into everything. But it's very it's still very much a skill that people need to learn. Like you don't just wake up and like, all right, I'm strong. It doesn't happen that way. You have to practice it. You have to keep refining things and keep getting better with things in order to actually progress. So over the years, I was able to get strong. Granted, I had injuries, but at the same time, um, my every time I got injured, my approach to it changed, actually. So in a way, it kind of helped progress me forward as I went along. Did you ever get any advice, like secret advice from your uncle? I mean, he was so strong that... I mean, he had to have some sort of path to get there. You know, you don't, you don't bench 405 for 10 reps, 10 sets of 10, just messing around. You know what, man? My uncle was always freakishly strong. Okay. Like, <laughs> like, like, like stupid. Like, and that's kind of like everybody in my family is pretty strong. Like I wasn't top five strong people in my family until I was like 20. Oh, Dang. damn. 21. I shit you not. I, there was one day I was at home and my cousin came over. And Matt Malaka was actually at my house. Okay. <laughs> and my cousin came in. I think I had like 315 on the bar or something like that. He comes in cold, presses it for 10, gets up and walks away. <laughs> I sh- I'm not even kidding. And so Matt's sitting there like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like, hey, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the family. Everybody in my family is pretty strong. And I was I guess I was naturally relatively strong. You know, my uncle, like he was just, that's just how he was. Like he would, I've literally seen him pick another human being up and throw him 10 feet in person. It's so shocking to see how strong he is. So I was like, all right, like, I don't know how I'm going to get there because his his advice was go lift. That was it. That was the only advice. Go lift. Just go lift. Do whatever. Initially getting into it, that's actually exactly what I did. I just kept lifting. Well, like that consistency is huge, yeah. right? Just just being able to go in there on a daily basis or every other day and stick with it is a is a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And like that's been the most helpful thing. And I think that's something that that that's always kind of like been there for me is I've always been consistent in one way or another. And it doesn't matter what it is. If it's even if I got 30 minutes. I could squeeze in a, a real quick session. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't really need two hours to work out. And I don't really think anybody needs two hours to work out. Can you get a lot done? Absolutely. But is that what you need? No, I don't believe so. Yeah, it's kind of like efficiency 
if you're spending two hours in the gym, what are you doing for that two hours? Yeah. Because if you're training effectively enough, you shouldn't even come close to needing two hours, right? Right. I mean, I mean you're probably in that two hours, if somebody says, I'm at the gym for two hours, there's probably a lot of downtime if yes. you actually watched them, right? There's probably a yeah. lot of lag, a lot of downtime. So you're like, yeah, you technically spend two hours, but the amount of work that you actually put in is very minimal during that two yeah. hour period, as opposed Absolutely. to if you have a half hour, you're getting right to it. I mean, there's no wasting time. You're like, I got 30 minutes. Let's get right into it. So it's the efficiency and that effectiveness of the, the time, the usage of your time right there. Big time. And like, in, when, when it comes to scheduling and like making sure that I'm effect, efficient with my time, like that, that's more helpful. Like that's another helpful step, right? Is how can you become not only more efficient in your movements, but how can you become more efficient with your time to make sure you get in whatever you need to get in and then worry about the other stuff later on. What's crazy to me is like, I hear about people warming up for an exercise for like 40 minutes. I'm sorry, <laughs> what? That's like, crazy. What That's a long time to warm up. Like, I feel like a warm up shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes. 15 minutes max, if you're going for like a, a, a max effort kind of day, then absolutely, yeah, take your time. But about seven to 10 minutes should suffice if you're really trying to get really warmed up. Like you've done powerlifting meets and how long does it typically take a person to warm up before they go, you know, perform in a, in a meet? I would say if, if someone's taking their time, maybe 10 minutes. And that's just my perspective when I did it, because it took me about roughly eight minutes. You don't need that much rest in between to warm up because you're effectively priming. So since you're priming a movement, that's really, really, really quick. But when you start to get up to priming the nervous system, that's where it takes a little bit more time. So then it might take, yeah, maybe 15 minutes if you're talking about priming the nervous system. But if you're talking about priming the movement, that doesn't take that long. It's just how, what positions are you getting in and how are you doing it? Yeah. So for, you know, for people that are just going into lift, they're not going in for a meet, you know, spending 40 minutes to warm up is ridiculous. It, it seems excessive. Yeah. It's a waste of time. And, and I think, well, we know. Most people's perceptions or concepts of warm-up is inefficient, so to speak, right? But we see a lot of trainers that'll tell their clients, oh, go run on the treadmill for 10 minutes and that's your warm-up. And you're like, no, that's much more than a warm-up. If you do the joint mobilizations that we teach with the stick, mm -hmm. like that's a warm-up, right? I mean, you're, yes. you're doing everything that you need to do to prepare your body for the movements that you're about to encounter, right? So you're making Absolutely. sure that all the joints are, are understanding their function and mm -hmm. you're adding the stress. So you're adding stress to the tissues and the joints, which Dan John talks about, that's warm up. Anything that adds extra stimulus and stress increases the stress to your tissues and your joints is a warm-up. It stimulates the central nervous system and it gets the tissues prepared. Yeah. And you know, and if a 10 minute run is really easy for you, okay. Yeah. But if a 10 minute run wears you out, then that's not a warm-up. No. And we yeah. see most people that by 10, if they're done running at the end of 10 minutes, they're like beat. Yeah. And yeah. now they're, and now their coach is getting that. Now the trainer's getting them into the, hard part of the workout right which you're like oh crap now they're already fatigued already so they're yeah. they're going into the workout at 60 percent efficiency or or optimal results there right oh, so yeah. that's what we're looking at which is concerning because for my clients i never want them to they should never be fatigued coming into the workout 
if I tell them to warm up, they shouldn't be like tired and huffing and puffing like ever. They did a little bit of a workout right there. So that doesn't make any sense from an efficiency standpoint and that actually drops their performance. So if I want to increase their performance, it has to be something where it's just like, okay, how can we create the most ideal way to warm up in the shortest period of time? Which is why I like the six so much is because if I'm doing a squat workout, I'm picking two, maybe three drills. That's it. Mm-hmm. And it's all what I need for that day. Because some, some days are different, you know. Some days my adductors might be a little bit tired than the other. Okay, though, I pick a specific drill to mobilize and warm up those tissues to prep me for squats. That's it. It's two or three drills. It doesn't take that long. For us, personally, mm-hmm. I love the fact that you've seen the importance of recovery and the ability to move and mm-hmm. taking that to a higher priority, much higher priority than I did at your age. Uh, <laughs> uh, to be, at your age, I was like, mobility? What the hell is that shit? <laughs> is that in the dictionary? I got to go look up that word. What does that mean? I think what's interesting is, is people in the demographic of powerlifting and really strength training, they kind of think they, their vision of mobility work is they think it needs to be exclusive. Like they can't be mixed together. And I think that's the one thing of being able to have you at the forefront to show, look, you can be super butt-ass strong and still take a high level of priority in the quality of your movement and the quality of your recovery work. Yeah. Without taking away from strength. Without taking away from strength. Right. And I think there's that, there's that misconception, right? You often see that I, I saw, I've seen that at powerlifting gyms. And so when, when I was prepping for the meet, I was, I was doing mobility drills. And that's the thing. I think there's a difference between active mobility versus that flexibility and just rolling. I don't think rolling is mobility at all, mm-hmm. in my opinion. That's soft tissue work. And that's a different kind of category. But when I would do mobility work, people would come up like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just kind of you know, warming up my tissues and just kind of going about things like this. And they're like, oh, well, can, can you teach me? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can teach you some things. And then I go on to teach them. And then later they're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was like, why did you ask? <laughs> and it's because there's this thing of why am I going to do this if, if this is going to potentially take away from my strength? And I'll and that's completely backwards, actually, because the tighter you get it, at a certain point, you kind of lose strength because then it's like what happens with injuries and then what happens when things aren't functioning the way that they're supposed to. So the only reason that I actually got stronger, as strong as I am currently or retained a certain amount of strength that I actually have is because I'm actually doing mobility work. It's not simply from the weight training. Or resistance and that's a great thing. And that's awesome to see because we, like we said, we, there are too many people and we, I actually encountered this when we were at a strength and conditioning show with high level coaches where these are collegiate strength and conditioning coaches. Mm-hmm. And one of the coaches there who was from a very prestigious university that's got a top 10 football program every year, you know, he was, he was looking at our booth and I said, Hey, I said, here, let me hand you a stick and let me show you some thoracic drills. You know, your, mm-hmm. your players are going to need this. And he literally looked at me and said, I like my back the way it is and just lumbered off. And I was, and I was like, oh, my God. I was, I was really <laughs> surprised. That was the last comment that I would have ever expected to mm-hmm. get from that type of coach at mm-hmm. that level. Your players need mobility and strength 
out on the field of play. So if you as a coach have this massive barrier to mobility work, you're easily passing that philosophy on to your players. Oh yeah, big time. I've gotten to talk to, even when I was in college, like when I was talking to a strength conditioning coach at one point, it, it was interesting because now looking back on the training philosophy, like the philosophy then was just like, going to hammer in strength. It's going to hammer these like exercises. It's going to keep pounding and pounding and pounding at it. But then it's just like, people are getting hurt. Like why are people like blowing out their ACL or why are people like tearing their hamstring and all these different things is because there's that lack of attention to movement or basically the lack of attention to detail, if you will, because mm-hmm. that's, that's a part of it. Being, having that mobility is a form of strength in itself, but people don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that problem is. What would your recommendation be for, because we see a lot of high school athletes and mm-hmm. maybe even as young as middle school, but high school athletes predominantly that are being pushed to lift a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would your approach be if, let's say if you had a son or a daughter who was getting into high school athletics and mm-hmm. their coach is like, we're going to really thrash on the weights. I mean, I want you lifting heavy, heavy, heavy. What would your, I mean, what would your philosophy or your recommendation be if that was the case? If that was the case for me, I would have them set aside time to actually focus on movement and mobility, learning how to actually move their body, how a human should be able to move. If I get an, if I get an athlete that can't simply do a, let's say a lunge, simple exercise, can't do a lunge without a good structural stability, a good foundation. I don't think it's a good idea to load up a barbell on their back and tell them to do squats until they fail. That seems kind of backwards to me. And so for me, it's a thing of let's teach you how to like, let's teach you how to move first. Then we can start to add that load over time so you can get stronger as you control the movement. And so having that practicality or setting aside, okay, well, two to three times a week, I want you to focus on these particular drills or these particular exercises to get you to learn how to move better. Then when you go into the weight training, it's like you're in, you're ready. You can, you can handle it. It's good to go. But that has to be a part of the programming. Yeah. And I think in, in good programs, you'll see, you know, movement patterns in their warmups and they're doing this every single day so that, you know, over the course of the year, that movement quality keeps improving and improving. Um, yeah. I mean, you can, you know, right away, man, if, if someone's lifting and they're getting worse, then it's like, all right, well, we should probably stop this or slow down a little bit and change things. But do we see, do we think the vetting process at that, at that level, as far as picking a coach is kind of, is where it needs to be? Because we do see some high school programs that are, are essentially picking really coaches or trainers, sometimes just people that looks that are strong they're like, oh, you lift a lot of weight. Come teach these kids how to lift weight. I think we have to ask ourselves as a parent, if your kid is in that high school, is the vetting process the proper thing? Is this a trainer that I would want to have coaching my kids? Right. So I think that's part of the something we want to kind of look at as a parent. If you had a kid going into yeah. a high school uh, Absolutely. sports program, for sure. Right. Because for me, like I want if, if that's my kid, I want to make sure my kid's taken care of. In all, in all facets. Yeah, I want to make my kid strong. Cool, do so. But again, make sure my kid can walk away. Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing. I want to make sure my kid can walk away just fine and they're not limping away. Or they got to like, oh, you know, I got this recurring shoulder injury. 
if that's the case, then that means that there's something wrong fundamentally with how they're being coached and that approach has to change. So there should be a process where maybe they're looking at like, okay, well, your, your strength conditioning coach, that's good, but what else can you add to it to make this a little bit better? Now, do you primarily you work with just barbells and dumbbells or are you using other tools besides like sandbags or kettlebells in your training? I use pretty much anything. Of, like Yeah, pretty much everything. Like I'll use mace bells or I'll use Indian clubs. I like barbells and I like dumbbells. So I, I enjoy them, but they're not the only thing I do. Because the way I see it is like I want to be kind of well-rounded. At this point, I feel like, not that I've mastered barbells or anything like that, but I've, I feel like I've gotten pretty good in a sense that I don't really <laughs> particularly need to, <laughs> to practice a whole lot. And so I added other things that, that I may not be that coordinated, right? So like with mace bells, that requires some coordination. It requires some stability. It requires a different type of movement pattern. And so... I'll do that every once in a while. So I'm trying to do that once a month or twice a month or whatever the case is, or whenever I feel like it. So I'm like, yeah, I don't really feel like doing a whole lot of barbell work. I'm just going to go pick up a mace bell and swing that a couple hundred times or whatever the case is. But I don't like being put in one box, if that makes mm, sense. Gotcha. What I see is like strength has to be well-rounded. The other week, I, I just did carries. I did a lot of carries. Like that was pretty much the majority of my workout. What kind of carries were you doing? Was it uh, farmer carries or just everything? It was, it was farmer's carries. It was with uh, 40 kilo kettlebells. Okay. Each hand. I was, then I just kept just carrying it, just picked it up, carried it for about 60 yards, did an exercise, came back, carried it for another 60 yards. Like, and I just kept doing that over and over and over again, but because I wanted that to be my primary uh, movement for the workout. I think it needs to, there has to be some versatility. And what I like about your strength is the fact that it's not just strength with a barbell or a dumbbell. Because, like, years ago when you picked me up, like, it was, like, <laughs> absolutely nothing. I mean, and I was 180 at the time. And Ray picked me up. People, Ray picked me up like, he, like I pick up a piece of paper. <laughs> like, I was in the air before I even knew what the hell was going on. I'm like, what is going on? And he's all like, flip. <laughs> but when you watch the video, it's so freaking casual. And that is what's amazing. So, and it's because, and what's amazing is, is the fact that a lot of people that just work primarily with barbells and dumbbells, they have a tough time working with other versions of load, right? Yes. The mass is different. The volume is different. And if they don't practice with different types of mass and volume, they have a hard time manipulating those type of objects. And with you, it was just, here's a human body. This is not equally balanced, but it was still just and up and over. Have you done a lot of wrestling in the past? I did wrestling a little bit in high school, but I actually ended up like not competing in wrestling. Okay. But my uncle did funny enough after he got out of prison, he, cause he was a martial artist. And so um, I learned some jujitsu and wrestling from him, but also I used to wrestle my cousins a lot too. And all of them are a lot bigger than me. I kid you not. I didn't hit a growth spurt until I hit high school. When I was in junior high, my eighth grade year, I was like four foot 11 and like 130 pounds. I, oh, I wish I could make that up. At the end of my freshman year, I was about five, eight about 160, 180 pounds. So I was small, man. I was, my cousins were big. I was like, dude, like this sucks. Like I had to wrestle them all the time. And that's, we were just fighting. It was basically me versus them three. I think that's where, <laughs> I think that's where you built all that super strength. Right from. Yeah. 
Yeah. You were, yeah. yeah, it was just the body. Because there's the so many too. different angles and you're dealing with, I mean, guys are just way, way stronger than you. And I, yeah. and I think that's why you're able to pick up anything because you know how to manipulate load at all these weird angles and you just understand like how to leverage your body, where to tense up. Where some people that just lift weights, they don't really, they can't tap into that. And I, and I think that's where that, that kind of that versatility comes in, right? If, because I've seen people who can row a good amount of weight, but they're terrible at pull-ups, which is surprising. Cause I'm just like, you know, I, when I, when I, when I used to see it, I was like, why aren't they good at pull-ups? Like they're rowing like 200 plus pounds, but their pull-ups are not really all that good. Understanding now it's just like, it's just a different load. It's just not the same. Before I even like really got into weight training, I was doing a lot of pull-ups and a lot of push-ups and a lot of stuff like that. So I built strength in that regard, and that kind of carried over into the weight training. And that's the thing is when you wrestle, your object that you're wrestling is fighting back. Yeah. Yes. And that's something that people that only use dumbbells and, and machines never get acclimated or adjusted to. That's a massive part of stimulus that they're missing. And then when they do encounter that, it's foreign to them. They don't know how to react to that because that barbell, yes, gravity's fighting you, but the object's not fighting you. The object's not right. moving around in your hand. And that's the one thing that people that do wrestling and MMA, that is a massive advantage of strength advantage that they have over a lot of other people that just work out in a gym. Absolutely. And I, and I got a lot of that strength from football too. Cause like when I was in football, I was a, I was a linebacker. Mm. I'm hitting anybody that gets in front of me. And a lot of those times I'm trying to work off people who are blocking or whatever the case is. Realistically, if people want to get strong, go against people. <laughs> that's yeah. honestly, that's, and I, I don't mean that in the, in a way where it's like violent or anything, but you get stronger and you get more efficient and you get more well-rounded when you go against other people. Like there's a reason why wrestlers are so damn strong mm -hmm. is because they're constantly wrestling people who are def effectively changing their shapes and changing the way that they're loaded. And they have to try to overcome that in some way, shape or form, either through technique or through strength. And regardless, at some point, that strength starts to go up. And I think if you have an aversion to, and some people do, I mean, we know mm -hmm. that some people have an aversion uh, and not just because of what's going on currently with the COVID, but even before yeah. that, some people have an aversion of, you know, engaging with other humans physically. So if you, if you have that issue, a physio ball or a Swiss ball works just, works great if you're pushing it into a wall and driving into it or pulling it in against it, because that energy that you're putting into the physio ball or the Swiss ball is giving right back to you. So it is a great substitute if you don't have a partner or if you have that aversion to having contact with other people, which we do see. Or like some of the stick wrestling drills too. Yeah, the stick wrestling drills. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's fun. So that, so that actually, was the hardest so when you guys had us do the physio ball against the wall and we had to try to stabilize that was the hardest i think that was actually the hardest drill for me when we did that in level two and it's because there's that reciprocation right it's like you were just talking about people will get better at learning how to kind of keep themselves grounded actually by doing those things because oftentimes when i get my clients to do it they're like oh my god what what's, what's going on i'm like yeah. just just <laughs> calm down like try to try to find that 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 point and try to focus on controlling And typically they tend to get pretty good at it after a little while. Let's kind of switch gears here. Let's delve a little bit into the nutrition side. That's not something we 
really get into anymore yeah, as far as not nutrition. too much. But for keeping, maintaining that strength and maintaining the size, is there just a general, general, some general guidelines that you try to maintain? So for me, one thing I always look at is protein consumption. There's a lot of information that tells people like, oh, I should have one gram of you know, protein per kilo or 0.8 grams of protein per kilo mm-hmm. or whatever the case is. I think the amount of protein that somebody needs to ingest is going to be specifically driven by their activity and what type of activity they're doing. For me, I look at how much protein am I getting in a day? And so typically about 250 grams of protein per day is a good, is a good like bar for me. But that's because I'm doing the that's a pretty relatively significant amount of uh, resistance training. So when it comes to that, I always look at protein. That's what I tell everybody to look at because most people chronically under eat protein, which is fascinating because people are like, oh, well, I'm not getting any stronger. Oh, I'm not really getting any bigger. I'm like, well, okay, let's, let's look at what you're eating. And then it's like, yeah, you're not having enough protein. One egg isn't going to give you uh, a good amount of protein. Having four ounces of steak in the evening isn't going to give you enough protein. There has to be that constant flow. And so nutritionally, I look at what's going to be best balanced for that person. So for myself, I don't tend to eat a lot of carbs, at least during the week. Weekends are yeah, they're different. <laughs> but, <laughs> I love my pancakes, man. But, <laughs> but for me, I, I focus on what's going to be the most efficient source of protein, what's going to be most efficient way for me to get in effectively the energy and the nutrients that I need to keep it going. So I try to focus on making sure that what I am eating is good stuff, but also making sure I'm getting enough of it. Because when I start to under eat, I actually start to get fat. Which is surprising. Oh. Yeah. So if I so I find that, and I've tested it, I've tested this out a couple, t- quite a few times actually. I've done a lot of testing with different nutrition, and what I find is if I'm under eating my calories to a relatively significant degree, that I actually my like I look like I'm losing muscle and I start getting puffy. What I find what I found is is that my typically when it happens, my protein consumption is a lot lower, and so actually when I up my protein, that satiation is there but also I'm able to retain that lean body mass a little bit more too. So I can kind of manipulate the fats in their carbs however I need to. So I remember before the shelter in place started, um, mm-hmm. you were doing, you were messing around with the carnivore diet. How did that go? Or are you still doing it? I'm still doing it. So I got, so it's interesting, man, because when I first heard about it, I had that initial resistance that a lot of people have, like that's, that's bullshit. There's no way. Okay, well, no ex- way. so what is the carnivore diet in case anybody wants to know what specifically it is? So the carnivore diet is when you're only eating specifically animal products. Depending on what you talk to, it's going to be different things. So it can be like red meat, uh, you can do chicken and pork and stuff like that. But typically red meat is going to be the most nutrient dense, most viable available. Some people like, again, with the carnivore, carnivore code, he does a nose to tail. So he eats everything from nose to tail, like organs and everything. Mm-hmm. I follow, I didn't follow on those lines. Typically, a lot of my eating made up of top sirloin, ribeye, eggs. I would eat cheese, sometimes yogurt, but not really all that often because it's just, I feel like it's better off without it. I just kind of stuck to that. And actually, it worked very well for me, personally. Um, I wasn't really all that hungry. I still stick to intermittent fasting as well which is another thing that most people think is contradicting to strength training. I do pretty well with intermittent fasting. I, some days I do one meal a day, some days I do two meals a day. It all, again, it all varies. But what I'll do is I'll do carnivore a few, a 
few days a week or most of the week. And there may be one or two days where I incorporate some kind of vegetables or whatever the case is. And I'll have my whatever day. Wow. Fascinating. So how, how many days a week are you intermittent fasting? Actually, I do seven days a week, even more so on the weekends. I actually go longer periods of time without eating uh, because I don't do anything energetically demanding. And so I try to keep my food consumption to what specific things am I doing for that day? If I'm not working out, I don't need to eat a, a ridiculously huge meal. <laughs> okay. But my eating window is four to six hours or so. And I can allocate all my calories in those four to six hours. Is that mostly in the evening? Typically, yes. Yeah. I'm not the biggest breakfast person, I'm honestly. Yeah. So yeah, I. Yeah. What about the pancakes, yes. man? So Except on the weekends. Oh, well, on the weekends. Hey, that, mm, actually, on dinner. Oh. oh. So uh, pancakes don't have to come in, in breakfast. They yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually, we talked yeah, about don't this. Be labeling yeah. that. Don't be labeling <laughs> that. Pancakes ain't just for breakfast anymore. No, they're not. No, man. Got to go to the program. <laughs> but um, but no, like I, I, I typically tend to eat like around like four, I'd say. Okay. So around three to four, and I typically stop eating like around eight, nine, sometimes 10, depending on how much I need to eat. And it is fa- it's fascinating that you say you intermittent fast, you see your strength levels are still there because I think a lot of people do fit, can fit, consider that to be contradictory, that yes. if they did intermittent fast, that they would lose a lot of their strength. So mm-hmm. it is nice to see somebody like yourself that that is an example of what you can still do with the results of intermittent fasting still being there. Yeah. Like, and, and I think what, what happens too is when people do start to intermittent fast, if they are losing strength, there's typically a couple factors. Maybe the, the stimulus that they're getting isn't enough stimulus. That's going to cause their strength to drop. Or maybe they're getting too much stimulus. That's going to cause their strength to drop. If they're not eating enough, especially enough protein, that's going to cause their strength to drop. So there's a, a few different factors to look at that may contribute to why their strength is dropping, not just, oh, I'm um, allocating all my calories to eight hours. So then the person has to try to play around with different aspects. They've got to try to basically be their own scientist, so to speak, or detective. They've got to, if they start to see that decline in strength, then they need to play with different aspects for a certain period of time to figure out if this is the piece that I need to change versus, versus just assuming it doesn't work which I think right. a lot of people do, right? They go, well, I'm intermittent fasting. My strength is going down. This is bullshit. I'm not using it anymore. Yeah. As opposed to taking time to figure out, okay, is there a certain factor that may be detrimental and taking away from my decrease my strength and then trying to figure out what that is while they're still doing the intermittent fasting? Yeah, because people like to blame one thing. And it's just like, first thing that comes to mind, like, oh, it's the it's fasting. It's definitely that. Everybody's fasting window is going to be different. Right. Some people can do very well with a 14 hour fasting window and they're they do exceptionally well. They have good body composition changes. They have good health changes and health benefits that come out of that. Some people might need to fast a little bit longer. It's going to depend on the person, but it's up to them to go. All right. I need to experiment with this a little bit and see what happens. So what about um, your blood work? I think we talked about this a little bit, too, but you got blood work done before you did the carnivore diet and then during. So I actually did keto. That was, a, oh, okay. that, was, that was what I did. So I did keto a couple years back and I was strict on it and I was strict on it. And I did the whole, the, the strips thing and all the other stuff. And I went to go get my blood work double my triglycerides were high. And so my cholesterol was high. And at that time, everything else came back normal, um, except my white blood cell count. But that's just because that's an ethnic mm-hmm. thing, actually. 
And so I was like tripping. I, I was kind of wondering for a second. I'm like, why is my triglycerides and cholesterol high? So I actually had to go do more research. And then when I looked at is what is the normal for people who do ketogenic type of eating and what they actually find is that their triglycerides and their cholesterol tends to be high. However, the units of measurement for that in a typical blood panel aren't, aren't really all that good because there's different types of cholesterol and the balance of what that is makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. But my fasting glucose levels were were normal. I think it was in around 60. My fasting insulin was low. Like it, like everything was normal. And so when I looked at it, I'm like, okay, I feel good and I feel really good. But the fact of seeing like my triglycerides and cholesterol was high, I was like, "Hmm, should I be concerned? But that's the other part is that people aren't really taught exactly what cholesterol is. Cholesterol is actually just a a vehicle to effectively move fatty acids. And so what happens is when you actually take in more faster, it's going to be an increase in cholesterol. The cholesterol can change within an hour. If somebody's fasting, of course, their cholesterol is going to be a little bit higher because there's effectively a stress on the body and it reacts to that. But they're not really told that by their doctors. And so when I got my blood work done, then it was it was. Again, it was good. And then I went back again about six months later and I actually lowered my fats a little bit and the numbers came back good. It, I didn't really feel as if it was really any, any different per se in a sense that it hindered anything or manipulated anything or how I felt. So I think when it comes to like that blood work and getting that done, there should be a more in-depth panel when people do get it done. And I always suggest to my clients, I'm like, hey, if you want to see it, how relatively healthy you are, go get a full panel, not a basic panel, but go get like a full metabolic panel, go get your A1C, go get all the blood work done to kind of see where you're at so you can make the changes where need be. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why, I don't know, Dennis and I don't really delve into the nutrition as much because it's so individual. And as an industry, we try to, we see, uh, why is there so much arguing about how people should eat? It gets, it's, it's really as frustrating as a coach Mm -hmm. because it's like everybody is different. And yet we've got people just beating each other up over. This is the way everybody should eat. No, it's not, you know, you talked about uh, ethnicity differences in regards to white blood cell count, right? We have a lot of genetic differences right out of the gate that nutrition really impacts and what we eat or don't eat goes a long way to determining our overall health but to tell somebody that yes this system of eating is universal i don't know man it's hard to say that and it, it and over the years of researching all these different formats you're like you just scratch your head you're like i don't know man i, yeah. I think it's just a you it's it's individualized to each person and, and that's kind of why i think what we all tell our clients is go get a yeah. blood test go go, go right. check your food sensitivities all that and go from there and but you know we kind of just lay off yeah. that like hey look pick quality foods yeah don't, don't go which, too crazy you know yeah. <laughs> eat two to three meals a day good, and which which is a good i think that's a good like measurement tool right it's like obviously step away from crap and process stuff yeah. as much as you can it's not really all that hard, but I think what where people get in trouble is that like they try to with the whole like this is the only way of eating. 
It's the yes. only way you should be eating. I think that's complete bullshit. I'm not going to lie to you, man. Because yeah. like, I don't believe that carnivore is the best diet on the planet. I don't believe that at all. I believe it's a, I believe it's a good habit of eating. It's like I believe keto is a good habit of eating or being a vegetarian or maybe even vegan. If that's something that you need for your specific genetic makeup and whatever, if that's what you need, do it. If that makes you feel good, do it. But to say one that like there's only one way of being, that's like saying there's only one way of working out. It's like, come there on, there is man. only one way. <laughs> <laughs> Our way. There's only one. <laughs> it's like the Highlander of nutrition. There can be only one. Um, that was my terrible Scottish accent. I am Irish, by the way, so I have a terrible Scottish accent. For me, laying off of meat's a big deal. But mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we talked to. A couple months ago, I, I went like a week period with I didn't eat any meat. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I felt good, but it's not. But that was more of a choice. And then I went, no, I need meat. Like, I was like, okay, I did this for a week. I felt good. And then I went back to eat meat. Like, it was just not something. That, it's not something me personally would maintain for a long period of time. But I think I, you play around with it just to see what it feels like. Everybody should. And I think there's not enough people that are doing that where it's just like, let me cut out certain things for a week or two weeks and let's see how I feel. But the other side of that too is like when people feel good from cutting out certain foods, maybe is, is it because a food had a bad reaction with what's in your stomach and your digestional system, maybe taking that food out, kind of cleared up some stuff that you had going on or whatever the case is. Like, like I'll see that with people who are vegetarian, who go vegetarian or vegan, right? Oh, yeah, I feel really good. Yeah, but you also cut out some crap, too. So which one is it? Is it because you're eating vegetables mostly or is it because you cut out crap? And that's the thing is like what people pair their food with makes a difference, too. Like, so like oh. What do you mean by that? So, let's say someone were to go vegan, right? Let's say this person ate, actually ate meat. And like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to try and be going vegan for a couple weeks. If, if you ate meat, but you ate it in a burrito, come on. Obviously, that's not good. But if but if you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm going vegan and I feel much better. Okay, you're, are you feeling better because you you're eating more vegetables or because you cut out junk that you were eating with the meat that you were having before? Or if you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, I cut out chicken, but I had it fried. What the fuck? Come on, man! Like you can't <laughs> you can't sit here and be like, oh yeah, well, meat's bad, but how you had it was yeah. what's bad. What you paired it with is what's bad. It's, it's kind of hard to say what's better, what's worse, because it's individual, but also like looking how people had it is a really big like thing to look at because they like to only highlight little bits and pieces, but they're not, they don't go, oh, yeah, well, how I had it was this whole thing. Yeah, because now you're like, okay, you had it and you deep fried it in vegetable oil. Now maybe it's the deep fried vegetable oil that's ha- causing all these problems, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you think we should also look at maybe our ancestral roots in regards to what types of foods we should be eating also because think about if we think about fruits if we're from equatorial areas where it's really hot year-round and it gets super hot and humid especially during the summertime Mm -hmm. fruit would be something that you would readily eat to stay hydrated yeah but if your roots if your ancestral roots come from say northern europe Mm -hmm. where it gets pretty freaking cold and your growing season is very limited, and there's a ton of fruits and vegetables that you would have never had access to, that your body 
just really didn't evolve to consume, so to speak. And maybe that's another aspect that maybe some people should look in at, perhaps. You know, yeah, just absolutely. Because I think even, uh, what, what, what is that? It got really popular some years ago when people would actually eat for their blood type, mm-hmm. right? There's that because yeah, maybe there's certain pathogens and different things that are a little bit more effective for people eating certain types of protein or whatever the case is. But people also need to know how to eat in season too. Mm-hmm. And so like most people want to eat vegetables and fruits out of season that can actually be inflammatory because now you have these manipulated affected particles within these vegetables and fruit that don't really agree with the system. And they're, since they're out of season, they're effectively force grown. And so what's interesting is I've been reading uh, the carnivore code a little bit. And one thing he kind of highlights is when it comes to certain fruits and vegetables, like we're not all fruits and vegetables are going to be good because everybody's, everybody's stomach and system is going to be different. And so knowing how to eat within season, within season is going to be extremely important because it has to actually do one itself. There was an, uh, a researcher who said like 99.9% of pesticides actually come from fruits and vegetables and cells, not oh, from wow. straight on food, oh, which I wow. thought was kind of interesting. But I was like, huh, that's fascinating. That's something to think about. But if that's the case, then should we limit? Yeah, we should limit certain types. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's tough because you go to the grocery store, right? You have the same stuff available year round, mostly year round, year round. right? So yeah. unless you're going to the farmer's market all the time, or you're mm-hmm. growing your own, you know, produce and vegetables and fruits, then mm-hmm. it's hard to know what is really in season or not, unless you actually go do the research. Yeah, P- people should be buying from local farmers to begin with, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Like that's gonna be the best way to go, because exactly like you said, you know what's in season when it is in season. Otherwise, they're gonna be like, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't got, you know, apples just like at this time. They won't be grown for another three to four months. Yeah that agriculture has to actually develop and grow on its own. And then it can actually kind of start to go that way. So people need to learn. I think people would be better off learning a little bit more about that. It's cyclical. It's seasonal. It's kind of like when eating six meals a day, you know, it's, it's things are cyclical means your digestive system needs a break. It needs rest. It wasn't meant to be working 24 hours a day. It's like mm-hmm. any other system in your body. It, it needs a rest. Like it, there needs to be a time where there's no food in the digestive tract. So mm-hmm. that way the digestive tract has some time to just take a break. So I don't, I don't know if you ever ate that way, but I know when I used to eat my six to seven small meals a day, if, yeah. if, man, I got past that three hour window. You did not want to be around me. <laughs> I'll tell you that, dude, you did not want to be around me, man. Sherry yeah. will tell you, Sherry will, wit, she'll be on, she'll tell you, she'll be like, oh yeah, you did not want to be around Dennis because he was all like, I need food. I mean, that's, and it's not cool. I, I, mean, I had a hanger, huh? I had, I had yeah. massive hanger issues, issues. And it's just not like, you get to the point where you're like, I, I can't live like this. Like this, mm-hmm. this isn't normal. Like how can this be considered normal? But also kind of, I think that's one of the things that kind of creates that not, not an addiction of food, but a severe dependence on yes. it. Like, like it's it's crazy how often I hear people like, oh, I just I had a snack. I got I got to have another snack in two hours. I'm like, what? Like, how are you hungry again? Did you not eat until you're satisfied? No, no, no. I don't do that. Yeah, I got to have five or six or seven small meals a day. I'm like, that's a lot. That's a lot of stress. Because that's because that's what it is. It's effectively stress. Mm-hmm. And so like that that chronic stress that's 
being introduced to the body, well, your body's going to have to find some way to fight that off. So how does it do it? Inflammation. That's just how the body's going to react to it. So I think people will be better off learning, for one, how to get away from food. Like you don't need, someone doesn't need to eat every three hours, four hours. People can go five to six, seven, eight, nine hours without eating. Like, I think we were talking about this a little while ago. Then this is a, you were like when people will go on flights and the flight's like eight hours or 10 hours. They're just like, oh, God, I got to eat. Yeah, no. You go eight or 10 hours without eating. Right. Which is shocking. But that's just still kind of where we live in. I think some of that is mental too, right? Because if you're really busy doing an activity, mm-hmm. you don't get hungry. Yeah. Right? You just, like, like when we're teaching, right? When we're teaching a, a course, you know, you go eight hours and if we didn't have lunch, like, it'd be okay because you're in it and you're, you're mentally focused. But I think when you have this downtime, uh, I don't know if there's something that, something that happens. You get like, into I'm, a flow state and food is lasting on your mind. Like you're in right. it. Like you are mentally just in tune to what you're doing. And time is that flow state is phenomenal when you get into it. Time just stops. It's irrelevant. And yeah, food is the farthest thing from your mind. And Absolutely. it's, but it's always interesting when you break for lunch and then the people that are attending the course, you know, you tell them where, you know, if, especially if it's here in San Jose, you tell them, Oh, there's some restaurants here and there. And they're like, Oh, where are you going? No, I'm not eating lunch. And they're like surprised. Well, you're not, you're not going to eat. No, I'm good. Like, I don't, are you sure? Like, and they're like they're kind of genuine. They're kind of genuinely concerned for your well-being. Like, are you going to die? No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Nothing's bad's going to happen. Like, I'm good with this. Like when I've taken the the, the the certifications, I didn't eat during lunch most times. I didn't eat until actually until I got home that night. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't need food. I'm not. A, I'm not. I'm not. It's not a ball and chain kind of relationship. I'll tell you the one thing that uh, when I do the one time when I was intermittent fasting, I was going on uh, 48 hours and I played hockey. I got back home and it was a big intermission. It was a 1 a 1. Yeah, it was a big it was a it was a 1 a.m. game. So, of course, you know, get home. It's, you know, it's almost three in the morning and you can't go to sleep. So I'm sitting there watching TV trying to down down regulate the food was last thing on my mind until mm-hmm. the freaking food commercials came on <laughs> i mean really and i said yeah, everyone man. son of a bitch now my brain saw the visions of food mm-hmm. and it correlated you know what that food would taste like and blah 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 and that was really the only time i literally had to go okay and i was on live tv so i'm like okay i gotta go watch something that's not gonna have commercials in it you yeah. didn't get up and go to the drive-thru? Yeah, no. I, like, I was, <laughs> I'm really, and what was crazy was uh, up until that point, like I, I was good. Like I was past, I was well into my 30 plus hours. Okay. And mm-hmm. so that, but that, and I, by that time, I, you know, I had already acclimated myself to not having, I didn't get those urges. But then when I saw the commercials and of course, when they show one food commercial, you know, they got to back that up with a second food commercial right afterwards. So it was that Mm -hmm. back to back hammer. So it does show you that that marketing and that visual aspect of the influence of how easily we are influenced with what we see and what we hear in regards to seeing things and we correlate what it tastes like, what it's going to smell like. And all of a sudden, you know, that, that the brain goes, oh, I need that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that I had smells. Oh, smells for sure, yeah, right? That's true. Yeah. Like, uh, I remember I did a 50-hour fast, actually. Okay. 
I I I got a whiff of something. Some, somebody ate something like right before, like I got into contact with him. It was actually at a, it was at work. And I was like, like, oh, you had this for lunch, huh? They were like, what the? How do you know? I'm like, <laughs> oh god! I'm like I can I can smell. Was it oh, good? Yeah. They're like, yeah, it was really good. I'm like you, mm. like, <laughs> that that sense of smell is crazy because when I first did a prolonged fast, that was the first time I actually got like a significant increase in like my smelling sense. I was like, why can I smell things I shouldn't? I don't typically smell. You started mm. going into like the hunt mode. Man, yeah. <laughs> he turned into like awesome. he turned into like Wolverine with the heightened senses. <laughs> He's like standing downwind. You're like, I smell somebody like ten like ten miles away. He's like a polar. <laughs> He's like a polar bear. I smell that. Okay, so you said you did a fifty hour fast. Uh, mm-hmm. The most I've gone is fifty three hours. How how long? And, and for people listening to this, this is not. I mean, we don't just do this haphazardly. Uh, I mean, for me, it was a very gradual buildup of being 24 hours. And then the next time I went on a prolonged fast, I added just a couple hours. Is that a process you went through before you hit your 50 hours? Absolutely. If, if, if I didn't do any kind of, I guess, prep beforehand or any kind of like practice beforehand, I wouldn't have made it. But I kind of do like what you did. Started 24 hours after I got felt pretty good with that. I added another four Felt pretty good with that. So I just kept gradually adding hours until I felt like pretty confident enough where I was like, I was actually going to do it. The funny thing is about doing that prolonged fast is that I got hungry, but the hunger went away relatively quick. And so like, granted, I was busy too. So that kept my mind off of it as well. But people often mistake hunger, thirst for hunger. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I can, I can actually say from my personal experience is I drank a lot of water because I was mostly thirsty, mm-hmm. but it actually helps with that hunger or uh, salt water, actually to be more specific. Oh, oh very okay. true. Yes. Yeah. Now, when you do filtered water, then are you adding, uh, like for me, I add a pinch of Celtic sea salt mm-hmm. in my water, especially in filtered water. Yeah. I'll do the, like those trace minerals. Yeah. Trace minerals. So, so, I'll, so I'll do Redmond real salt uh, in my water typically. And so funny enough, James D. Nicolantonio the, wrote the book, The Salt Fix, and that was a really good book. But he talks about Redmond real salt and the fact that it actually doesn't have any microplastics in it because it's taken from a lake bed uh, up north. The salt actually tastes pretty, it's actually good too. But I would typically do that um, because it does have a little bit more magnesium than most salt does. Whereas pink Himalayan salt has more iodine in it. And so, oh. um, so typically for me, I'll do like maybe like a quarter of a teaspoon in like 32 ounces or so. Then just kind of have that. Okay. And that for me works really well. And so for people that are trying to figure out what we're talking about, when you have filtered water and when you, let's say you, you go to the store, you pick up a bottle of filtered water. Well, you look on the back, if it's pure filtered, like, Coke owns how many different brands of bottled water? They own a ton. But when you pick yeah. up their bottled water, you'll see that it's fortified with minerals once the filtration process has taken place because they pulled those trace minerals out originally during the filtration process. Where companies like like uh, Evian and Fiji, when you look at the back of their bottles, you'll see particles per uh, milliliter Mm -hmm. and that's telling you how many trace minerals there are in there and the trace minerals need to be in there to help increase your rate of absorption into the cells and that's the reason so when we're talking about adding salts 
Uh, we're not talking about your regular table salt. So we're talking about sea salt or it's not filtered, it hasn't been clean, and it's still got those trace elements because we're adding that to the filtered water. So that way the rate of absorption increases into the cells. And so for people that want to hear, understand what we're talking about, that's what we're doing. Absolutely. And that there has to be that balance too. So that's the other side of the equation, right? As we hear about sodium a lot, but there has to be that balance of potassium and magnesium. And so in order for water to actually get into the cell and have that extracellular and intracellular water balance, there has to be potassium and magnesium present in the system as well, trace minerals. So when people actually have that, they have a much better absorption of that water and they're actually their hydration gets a lot better anyway. And it's funny. Most people it, are yeah. Hydrated. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Time, they're yeah. way underhydrated. And, and if you're a frequent traveler, especially if you're on planes all the time, it is really important to make sure that you're staying hydrated. It's probably one of the easiest things just in general population to, to be dehydrated. But when you travel a lot and you spend a lot of time in the sky, you need to really focus more on, on making sure that you are hydrated. Like one of the first things I do when I get to my hotel is I make sure I have bought, I have water on me, but man, when I get to the hotel, I'm searching out more water. Like that's one of my first objectives besides moving. I want to get hydrated. So going back to um, strength training here, uh, these little 30 minute workouts. So for someone that only has 30 minutes, every time that they can train, what, let's just say two or three lifts or three movements would you recommend? to get the the most bang for your buck, you know, and get as strong as you can. Right off the bat, first thing that comes to mind is deadlifts, without a doubt. Um, or some kind of deadlift variation to be specific. It doesn't have to be a barbell. It can be a hex bar, it can be a kettlebell, doesn't matter. But some kind of a deadlift variation. That is just overall that best bang for your buck exercise, especially if you're trying to get the nervous system stimulated. Um, also carries of some sort, any kind of carry. Uh, farmer's carry, front rack carry, overhead carry, doesn't really matter. Anything that you can kind of get in uh, for that regard. And if if I'm looking for another best bang for your buck, it, it, it kind of really depends, to be honest, because I feel like if you're trying to get something where it's more lower body dominant, goblet squats are a really good way to kind of get some of that stimulus because it does force a lot of stabilization in the core, stabilization in the hips and the ankles probably one of the best and easiest forms of exercise uh, squats to do in my opinion i would add that in but if they're looking for something to kind of get a little bit more out of it especially for like some kind of a back movement either some kind of row or pull up if they have the ability to typically dumbbell rows actually dumbbell rows over pull-ups um i say pull-ups over dumbbell rows for sure just because it's more i feel like you get a lot more out of that and you can't cheat it. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't, can't cheat, cheat a pull-up. No. Um, uh, I mean, technically you can, I guess. But, but, uh, but strict pull-ups, absolutely, absolutely, big time. Um, but if you don't, if someone can't do pull-ups, dumbbell rows are like the, a really solid go-to. And an advantage with goblet squats, which Ray just mentioned, is it really, for people with back issues or mm-hmm. chronic back issues, they really are much safer yes. as far as the version of a squat is concerned because uh, Mike Boyle talks about a bar on a back is a torque amplifier, especially mm-hmm. if you don't have very good core strength, vertical core strength as you're going up and down out of the squat. That bar may create rotation and then create more torque in the lumbar spine. So yeah. if, if you don't know what a goblet squat is, 
you can YouTube the shit out of it. The, you'll yeah. see more people telling you, showing you goblet squats, but it is a really safe version for the general population, uh, especially if you tend to have chronic back issues. Yeah, and then that counterweight just helps you get a little bit lower, helps yes. you work your mobility a little bit more too. So speaking about you know pressurizing your core and everything, so you don't use a belt to lift. Have you ever have you ever tried just to test like, hey, you know my belted deadlift is is over seven hundred, or my unbelted deadlift is seven hundred or a little over seven hundred? What could I do with a belt? I have you done so- it. Come on, 900, 900. So I've used a belt one time. And funny enough, it was actually off perfect for that powerlifting competition. And I just wanted to see how it felt. Okay. okay. And I low bar, I did a low bar squat and it was 600 pounds. And that was the, that was the most I've done at that point in time. So when I, I did that, it was hell uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. I hate belts. I hate belts with the fiery passion (laughs) i just can't i just can't get comfortable with them like it never feels good for me i'm curious but i'm not curious enough to actually do it oh gotcha you know what i'm saying yeah so like to me a belt a belt is a, a is should be used as a tool to learn how to brace in my opinion right so i've i've actually seen um this was years ago. I forgot the gentleman's name, but he would actually use belts as a way to teach people how to actually properly brace. And he would actually get them to, you know, expand a rib cage, get everything to push against the belt, and then just kind of lock everything in. And they would do that in an exercise, which I thought was really fascinating. But I think when people use belts, they actually get weaker. And, and, and I mean that if you were to take a belt away, how strong yeah. would they be? Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why we, we, Neil and I say that Ray is the strongest person we've ever had the pleasure of actually knowing because of that simple difference. And it is when it is super impressive when you see somebody lift that much weight with no belt on. It, it is ultra impressive. And that's what we call stupid strong. It, it really is. And so when you take away that belt, now, how much can you actually lift, uh, unaided lift, so to speak? Yeah, it's kind of like lifting with knee wraps. Like, it's cool. You can use it as a way to maybe gauge your stretch reflex or whatever the case is, but it's, it's, it's just a tool. And I think people depend on it far too much. And so actually, when I did my lifting competition, people were surprised, like, you don't use a belt? No. I don't, yeah, they, I don't, they definitely I don't had one shocked. Yeah. yeah, they were probably yeah. very surprised. Yeah. And it was, for one, it was never comfortable. For two, I don't really care to actually practice lifting with it. But it's just, I, didn't, I, didn't, I never saw a point of me doing it. If I can be strong without a belt, then I can be strong, is the way I saw it. And you can be strong in any situation that arises Absolutely. because, you know, if something happens, you can't go, oh, shit, hold on a second. Let me get that belt. <laughs> <laughs> I got this thing. All right, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. I guess you see that so often, like people are like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do this without my belt. I'm like, damn, what is it? You're like your left leg or something? Like, what's up, man? Like, it's, 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 it's so fascinating how dependent people are on it. Not that it's bad, because maybe some people need it. Maybe some people need to learn how to use it or learn how to create that proper intra-abdominal pressure. But still, there had they have to be you know, autonomous of it. They have to know how to lift without it and be strong without it. So what you're saying is I shouldn't have a belt on when I'm doing seated leg extensions. 
Definitely have a <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> okay. Just want to make that clear. I mean, I'll, I'll make sure I don't do that next time. <laughs> do you do you think though that that you could be you know used in the proper way that you mm-hmm. do gain some strength from the belt, like across the board for most people? Yes, yes, I believe there there actually is. So I think there's that 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 is a pretty significant benefit to it because some people can add on twenty anywhere between fifteen to about thirty pounds to their lift. Oh, that's a lot. Belt, yeah. yeah, which plays a pretty significant part. Which is interesting because like. If, if you've ever seen some powerlifters, when they program or when they do some program, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this part without a belt. That's crazy. You have to actually add in beltless training to your training. Mm-hmm. But it's so they can actually get that, get stronger, have a baseline. So when they add on a belt, that carries over. So I think having that baseline strength is important. Does it add to it? Absolutely. When, no, when used properly? Yes. Big time. And so for general population, you you definitely want to try to just use the belt to teach them how to brace and then take it away from them. So that way, once they've learned that bracing technique on their lifts, take the belts away and then train them without it. Because that now they should have that feedback. They should understand how to do it naturally. So then going forward, then you're saying that they should be able to do all their lifts without their belt. Absolutely. The the Valsalva maneuver, right? It's Mm -hmm. been pretty popular for quite some time now. When most people don't know how to do it, right? Like they don't really have that, that, that awareness, that kinesthetic awareness to go like, okay, if I need to like lock down my rib cage, okay, now I need to breathe through an expander rib cage 360. That's one of the, the things that I've learned when I took FMS years back from Greg Cook is that learn how to breathe better, like learn how to breathe properly so that you can be more efficient with your movements. And so most people don't know how to breathe. So then there's that, there's that weakness from that lack of that diaphragmatic breathing. So when people are taught how to uh, to brace and learn how to contract and expand your diaphragm, they actually get stronger pretty quickly because that takes care of a lot of that stability. That stability doesn't ha- is not as much of an issue at that point anymore. So do you think a, a logical progression could be someone starts out with a belt that's fairly tight, right? So mm-hmm. you start you start pushing against that and then slowly loosen the belt and keep the belt on until it's really loose mm-hmm. and then take it away. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the best one. It's that feedback. It's kind of, it's like the sticks, right? Mm-hmm. The sticks allow for the user to get that immediate feedback. As soon as they get into a certain position or as soon as they add in a little bit of tension, a belt is very much the same way in that sense where people can get that immediate feedback and they can go, Oh, Oh, okay. I get it now. And then it can just keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And the whole purpose of this is so that way it can transfer into your everyday life. Because just like Neil said just a few minutes ago, when you're out in the middle, let's say you're moving furniture or doing something in your house, you don't just stop and go run and get your belt, put it on, and then come back and do what you're going to do in the house. It's just ridiculous. You don't do that. So, But you've got to be able to at least teach yourself the basics so that way when you go to have to move your furniture, just pick up your kid. You should be strong enough and understand the, the – and those reactions should automatically happen. Yeah. Yes. It's not something you should have to think about. And that's ultimately what we're after. We want you mm-hmm. to automatically be able to do those things without even thinking about it. 
It's just a yes. natural reaction. Are you looking to set any PRs in the near future? Or are you looking to? Oh man, I, I'm not gonna lie, man. This lockdown got me messed up. <laughs> um, it, I, I would like to, but it's just gonna take me some time because, for one, I just, I just didn't have the same stimulus for for quite some time. But I would like to get my spot to six fifty by okay. next year. By by the middle of next year, say a year from now, that's the next goal. I'd like to get my deadlift to like seven twenty five. And what is your squat right now? Jesus, right now? (laughs) (laughs) Or you know, or when you last tested it? When I last tested it, shoot, it was six hundred. It was six hundred on the high bar. Okay. Um, I don't low bar anymore. It's just not all that comfortable for me. It never Mm -hmm. was. But six hundred on no, sorry, six oh five on the high bar. Okay. 605. Squats one just definitely one exercise. I feel like I can move the bar in relatively quick versus my deadlift and my bench press. Bench press for me is the slowest moving one. Oh, really? No. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it, it took me the, like when I, when I did 475 about a year and a half ago, it took four months of programming for me to get there. And at that point in time, that was like a 20 pound jump. And that programming was, and I was benching three times a week doing that oh damn so, okay that frequency was there but right but i haven't i haven't done a program in since then actually see that's when it's advantageous to have short tiny little arms these short stubby little arms right here yeah his hand shows in the camera dude yeah like, like right here like yeah that's ridiculous <laughs> but that's where i have an, a limb length advantage i got a lever length advantage there so yeah, you'd be a monster bench presser. <laughs> yeah, I hit 400 uh, years back, and then uh, Damn, dude. and that was in my right around 30, 31 years of age when Damn. I did that. At what weight were you? How much did you weigh? Oh Jesus, I weighed 170. Okay, that's pretty. Good. Damn, yeah. that was that's, it. Yeah, that's really good, man. I used to have a uh, trainer that I used to work with, Corey, who is now a chiropractor. Honestly, before you. He was the strongest mm. individual I had ever known okay, on, on our list. Like he was uh, him and uh, Jeff who owns bad boys, bail bonds. Uh, the two of them okay. were the two strongest individuals I had ever seen. Uh, but mm. Corey isn't the side. Like Jeff is a big man. Mm-hmm. He's big, <laughs> like huge barrel chest. This dude's Jeff's thighs are like just ridiculous, like ridiculously <laughs> large. Um, and so, but like when you see him, you expect him to be strong. Like you has, he has that physique. Like it doesn't surprise you when he picks up a 150 pound dumbbell and curls with it. You're like, okay, I expected that, you know, but Corey was a little, was still big, but much, but smaller compared to Jeff. And, uh, and yeah, him and I would tear it up in the weight room. He was probably one of my best lifting partners that I ever had when I was doing that meathead lifestyle. Uh, mm-hmm. the two of us would go in and he would crank it. Uh, so he was super great motivationally for me. And, uh, but yeah, I got to the 400 pound mark and it was great. But then I sat there and went, okay, now what? Like, I literally was all like, <laughs> <laughs> I literally was like, all that shit for what? Like I did it and I was like, okay. It is wildly underwhelming. It is, it, isn't it? Huh? Crazy. Cause when I got there, I was like, cool. <laughs> what's, what's next like yeah. like it's funny because bitch like i don't 
I don't really like bench press per se. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I'm, I don't really look for, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm about to go bench press. I'm, I'm not one of those kind of people. I'm just like, yeah, I do it. I'm like, you know, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent movement, I guess. But like, I've never really been all super satisfied with bench press. I get way more satisfaction out of squats or deadlifts because I feel like that's, that's much more impressive. It's almost like I could bench press 600 pounds. That's a lot of weight. Don't yeah. get me wrong. That's a shit ton of weight. But if someone's like, oh, yeah, I just squatted like 700 for like three. I'm like, oh, shit. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that is my reaction. Yeah. So it's just bench press for, for me personally is just super underwhelming. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was just all like, well, and, and now and now, like maybe once every three months, I, I, I lay under a bar and do some bench press. And that's about it. I actually, for the first time in quite a while, a few months back, right before, right during this COVID when it started in March, mm-hmm. I actually benched, I think, four times in a period of like two weeks. Oh, you're probably so sore the first, first couple yeah. of days. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, that, and I'd have, and honestly, I only did that because I just, for whatever reason, I was like, ah, fuck it. I want to try it. Yeah. Just, I'm going to yeah. do this a couple times a week for two weeks and see what happens. Uh, and see, but that was it. Other than that, I don't really, t- I don't really do much when it comes to that. Uh, yeah. Because with the what you said with the squatting is uh, knowing that how much physical demand you're under when you have that much weight on top of you, and yeah. you're standing vertically, like you, like that's the kind of weight when you step back from the hooks. Like you're just like your whole body is just lit up, yeah. lit up. It like that's a up. totally different sensation. You just don't get that when you bench. Like no. it's just not even close. Not even close. Yeah, that's 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 one thing I respect about people like people who can like squat a, a, like a significant amount of weight. Like it's just like damn. Like it's not like and, and especially when they're doing it for repetitions. Like I'm I'm impressed by somebody doing a 315 pound squat. For a set of three, I find that personally impressive. He's just like, damn, it's a lot of weight on your back, and you're sitting down and standing back up with that thing more than once. Shit, props to you. Or like, or like a deadlift, like you pick up something hella heavy off the floor and stand up. With. To me, that's impressive. But to go, I lay it on my back and I pick something up and I press it off my chest. <laughs> that doesn't sound that. That doesn't sound that exciting. So it's like, good for you. Yeah, it's like a bent over row is more impressive than than a bench press. A heavy bent over row for sure. Yeah, I'm much more impressed by that. If you're doing bent over rows, you know, with 200 plus pounds, well, that's freaking that's beastly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think especially if you're general population, because I mean, think about how much we talk about weight weight strength in the weight room, but then we mm-hmm. think about really when you think about over the last year. Outside of the weight room, mm-hmm. how many times have you really picked up anything that's over 100 pounds, 150 pounds? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. Yeah. I think we've Hardly talked ever. about this before, Ray, about how you know most of us that are in this field are probably way stronger than we, we actually need to be for our daily lives. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no reason. <laughs> like, when are you ever going to pick up 300 pounds off the floor? You're probably not. <laughs> You're typically not. So, like, or you're going to put something on your back or hold something like this that's 150 pounds of squat with it. Probably not ever. Are we too strong for what we really need for our day to day? I mean, 
Technically, yeah. <laughs> but, there's, but there's nothing wrong with that, man. No, there's I mean, there's, wrong with it. if you're staying healthy, I don't think you can be too strong. No, no. Like, and that's that's the other major part, right? Is like, how can you get strong without getting hurt? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. That's that's one of the biggest things that that's actually that is a key to getting strong. Is like, don't get hurt. If you don't get hurt, you can keep training and keep building that strength. As soon as you get hurt, now that actually kind of cuts you back. Well, and I like what you said about how you're gonna hit try to hit 650, but you're not doing this until next summer, mm-hmm. where. I, I don't think people realize how long it takes. You know, unless you're a, a complete beginner, you'll get strong pretty fast. But if you've been lifting for quite a while, it takes a really long time to make changes. It takes forever. Shit, even for me to get 10 to 15 pounds on my on my deadlift, that can take six months. Yeah. That can take six months. People are impatient. People have Super. no, yeah. They, they don't have patience. Like they want it now. Mm-hmm. And it's our job as coaches is just letting them know that dude, this is, this is a journey. Yeah. Like if you want this right and you want to stay healthy, like this is going to mm-hmm. take some time. Yeah. And you want to stay strong for the long haul too. You don't want to yeah. hit this, this mark. And then all of a sudden you hit this mark and you know, you get severely injured and then, then what? Because if you can't get out of bed, it doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. if you're, if your back gives out and you're bedridden for three days, you're laid up. What have you, what have you accomplished? You've actually set yourself way back because way now, back. And, and then you get that same person that didn't have patience in the first place. Now they're coming back from an injury. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Now they're really impatient, right? Yeah. Cause then they got somebody telling them, Look, this is going to take you quite a while. And they didn't have that patience in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, good Lord. Well, and I think everyone coming out of uh, lockdown in the areas that, you know, you're allowed to, they're going to hit the gym and they're going to go crazy for two weeks, three weeks. And it's like that. Know, they, need, yeah. they need to start this thing off slow, you know, unless you have your own home gym and you've been able to be consistent and, and all that. Mm-hmm. That's different. It's like that New Year's Eve resolution, but now it's not going to be New Year's Eve. It's going to be, it's going to be that COVID resolution, right? Yeah. yeah. It was really cool to see Cliff Marshall, who's the head SNC coach at Indiana for the, for the men's basketball. And he shared a post the other day that said, Hey, you know, most injuries are going to come, are going to come from trying to do too much too soon after doing too little for too long. Yeah. And what, I, what I liked about it was he said, this is something that I personally have to keep in mind also. Mm-hmm. And that was great, and you know, to see that post, and so I personally, I was like, this, is, this has to be shared. This has to be put out there because it's just a little reminder for people. Yeah, because yeah. your your like, motivation is going to outweigh like uh, your body's capability to adapt to. <laughs> yeah, if that was because that was the case, man, a lot of people would be a lot stronger. But it's just like I think that the thing that people miss too is that people don't enjoy the process enough. That's yeah. I think that's a huge like missing components that people are like are only focused on how do I get this 300 pound bench or how do I get this blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, enjoy the damn process. (laughs) Like it's not, you don't just get there in one go. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort, but there's that learning along the way and people just kind of don't really care about it. And so for me, I enjoy the process of whatever. Like if I never got stronger, if I never got any bigger, if I never got whatever, I'd still do it. 
personally. I would still be lifting. It wouldn't. It doesn't really matter. The, the end goal is just that's the icing on a cake. But I enjoy the process of it all as as a whole. And so, people need to learn how to enjoy the process a little bit more, so that they can get more out of it, and then look at it as, hmm, okay, like. I got my goal, but look at all the work that it took to get there rather than going, I just got my goal. Okay. So here's a random question. Yeah. We, uh, have you ever been tempted with PEDs? No, I've never been tempted, but I've, <laughs> I've been curious about them. Not curious enough to try. Like I've, I've always been accused of taking them actually, which I thought was, I don't know if that's an insult or a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's both. No, I think it's both. I think it's both. You know, but like I was always accused of taking them. Like even in high school, yeah. they're like, "No, you're 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 juicing, you're on gear." I'm like, "I'm not." What the fuck? I don't even know what what. And I've been curious about it because I'm more so curious. How strong would I? Right. Uh, we're curious. We're curious. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> no, don't do it though. Don't do it. Don't do it. Not, yeah. <laughs> like I, I've, I've been curious about it, and I, and, I, and I think about this sometimes. I'm like, damn. If I was if I was running a stack, and if I was running like a, like everything's been like down to the T, I know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm taking. How strong would I get? And I think about that. I'm like, damn, would I get to like a like a 900 pound deadlift? Hmm, maybe. I don't know. Would I get to 800 pound squat? I don't. I don't know. Like. I'm curious about it, but I've never been tempted by it. Mm, okay. You know what I'm saying? I've never been like, I've at no point ever someone got, like, have I ever seen somebody take it and been like, damn, I want to try that. I've never been like, all the people around you that do take them aren't even as strong as you now. Yeah. <laughs> That's the reason why. <laughs> which is, is kind of crazy because like, I, like I knew people who did take performance enhancers. Yeah, and then I'm gonna sound like a like a dick, but like they're not all that impressive. Like it's it's just it's not they're not all that impressive, and it mm-hmm. like it makes me wonder like for one, what are you doing it for? Are you doing it? For yeah, like, are you doing it just recreationally because you want to see how big you can get, or are you doing it for something specific like a sport or whatever? Um, but most times people do them recreationally, and half the time they don't know what the hell they're doing either. Mm-hmm. It's typically not impressive when I see people take performance answers. But also the, the effects of it are permanent. And so that, to me, kind of wards me away from some of the side effects that come along with it. Yeah, the risk is not worth the reward for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And the reward I, is small. The reward is super small. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, I can, cool, I can lift some stuff. That's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of it. Yeah, I had that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I uh, and I, I did I, I you know growing up looking at muscle and fitness and all these flex magazine and thinking, Jesus, do I have what it takes to be on the cover someday? Besides the ugly face, do I do I have the ability to to get to get the uh, physique at least on the cover? You know they can airbrush the face, uh, but I'm like, but I'm thinking I'm going, man, you know, like do I have it? And then when I came out here to California and worked with him, I, I did. I was like do you want to, can I ask you to train me for a show? And his first question was like, okay, well, what are you willing to take drug wise? And I'm like, I'm not willing to take anything. He's all like, well, then don't waste your time and don't waste my time. And I was like, okay, cool. I mean, that's all I needed to know because same as you, I was tempted. Like I, like I was like, man, what are the possibilities? Like I carry this much muscle mass just at my, at five, three naturally. Mm -hmm. What what could I do if I, 
took a little bit of if I took a correct stack and for let's say I did that for a year, what what could I look like? You know, so right. and it was it was hard for me, you know. But yeah, at the same time, when after he's talked to me a little bit more about it, I was like, yeah, it's not yeah, bad. yeah. It just didn't. The risk definitely outweighed the reward for me. Because that reward is oftentimes too sh- kind of short lived. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not, it's not like you get, to, it's not like you get to that point and you keep that for an extended period of time. It's pretty short lived. And so, if I have to do this crazy hormonal damage to my body in order to get to this point, but then after, it's just like, well, say goodbye. It's going to start to go away pretty damn quick now. Like to me, it's like, eh, no, like I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to have to deal with that because then I have to deal with the damages for much longer than I keep the reward. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, if you're thinking, if you look at it in the respect of if I do this, if I get the reward here, but it comes with the fact that I'm taking X amount of years off my life expectancy it, mm-hmm. or I'm going to encounter X amount of health issues because of it is that worth the outcome you know or the 15 minutes of fame or whatever that you yeah. might get like us we're not professional athletes it's, it's different if you're talking about tens multi, of millions, of dollars. Of, millions yeah. of dollars yeah like we I just think they all should be taking it honestly to, to like I'll, that's i don't really get that part of it where it's just like you have these people who are doing a significant amount of bodily damage but then you're going to get on them for taking something that helps them basically heal quicker and recover faster yeah you're, you're not put you're not damaging your body for for money let alone over and over and over and over and over again if these people have careers that last three to ten years that's a long time that's a long time and so i i see why athletes do that it makes sense. This, that's literally their livelihood and they got to take care of their body the best way that they can. And that helps. Mm-hmm. Like getting to that level is, it's not, it's not easy. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you. And it's, it's, it's so yeah, if there's a lot of money involved and it's your career on the line, then yeah, we, we get it. And it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I think most people don't even give a shit if, if pro athletes are taking performance enhancers, if it really comes down to it. Because we watch sports. Why do we watch sports? We're trying to see. You want to see the, the, the best, most athletic, ever. strongest, most powerful right? movement person out there, right? We do. Yeah. I mean, that's why we pay. That's why we take the time to sit down in front of a TV and watch this. Or why you watch superhero movies. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, they are essentially our superheroes. The people yes. that we see in sports. They are our superheroes. They're the ones that can do stuff that we can't yeah. do things that we can't. So, I mean, if, if the whole, the kind of like the hypocrisy, the double, you know, of issue in the world of organized competitive sports is kind of goofy in some respects when we really get down to it, you know? So yeah. Interesting. I figured I'd just ask you, I, you know, that's not something I'd ever asked you before. So I want to see what your feedback was on that because i think a lot of people out there right now i ask themselves that question a lot because i was pretty surprised at how many uh when you read articles about how many of the general population gym goers actually take peds man it's quite a bit it's, it's quite a bit it is a lot like i was even really surprised the, like even at the gym i was working at i knew of 20 people who were taking performance oh shit 
did you really 20 20 people when i when i heard about it, i was like for like really is that like it's that i was surprised i'm like it's a small spot but it's just that many people yeah like a regular and it's just a regular regular gym yeah like it's not gold's gym and in, in, or, or anything like that it's just a regular, regular gym. gym yeah i i was i was really blown away when you start to read articles about how many people when they survey people without anonymously have you ever taken blah 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 and you, the percentage is rather surprisingly high people are yeah. like i'm I, you know aesthetically i want to look a certain way or i want to get a certain strength level so for them that that reward has outweighed the risk and they're willing to do it and sometimes it does it you scratch your head going okay you know yeah. like what's the point of all this you're not going to get paid. You're not even going to get paid six figures for taking, you know, the no, you're, you're paying six you're figures. You're paying six figures, yeah. right? Like, you're not going out on the stage. You're not going to get on the cover of a magazine. Like, this is stuff that's not going to happen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's interesting to see what motivates people. And what Which is they, crazy what, how much they spend, too. Like, that, that, that was surprising to me when I felt like, Cause I've, I've read some stuff about how much they spend, and they spend a lot of money. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah, a lot. And I'm like, dude. Like, so e- like, even if they were to compete, you're basically paying that back. That's all that is. You're basically paying that back. Pretty so much. it's like, damn, damn yeah, I, didn't, have, I didn't realize. You have to be like the top one percent of the elite to make money doing pretty, that, yeah. right? Pretty much. Like in mm-hmm. that bodybuilding world. Yeah. Yeah. But even in the in the lower like say baseball, like I'm. I mean, how many people? Like, think about how many minor league affiliates. Every team has three minor league affiliates, right? And now we're not even taking into account the independent leagues that don't have actual affiliation with a with a parent club. Think about how hmm. many players are on each one of those teams, and how think about how many players are taking PEDs. And then yeah. how many how many are actually going to see the big show? Like, how many are actually going to get a call up? That's true. You know, and not and and they're not making bank down at those leagues at those levels. Yeah. They're not getting paid a ton of money. So yeah, it's like you said, they're paying yeah. to basically play in essence. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I mean, don't get me wrong. You're getting paid to play a kid's game. Yes. Yeah. Sign me up. If I had that ability, sign me up. But yeah, yeah if you're paying out the wazoo to get PEDs. And then you never get that call up to the top level. You do. You kind of got to sit there and think afterwards, shit, was it even worth it? Yeah. That's always a big question. And I think that's, because I remember, Neil, like me, me, you were talking about football, right? Oh, I, yeah. I think, yeah, I, th- I think the question came up, like, it, like, would I play football professionally? I said, no. <laughs> I think it's good that there's people who take care of these athletes. And like they have that team of people who are trying to make sure that they're as healthy as possible. But again, it kind of comes down to how much bodily damage are they taking in those sports? And in my opinion, football is like amongst the highest. And so if I got paid $10 million a play, I'd probably say no, because at that point in time, it's just what's this going to do to me long-term wise and not just the the shoulders or the knees or the back or none of that, but like the brains of the neurological damage that comes along with that. And it's just kind of hard to say, yeah, because the way I look at it is how is this going to improve my quality of life? 
Yeah, I think, yeah, with all the research coming out with CTE mm-hmm. and all that stuff, then you just, yeah. you just don't know. Let's say you have, there's a young listener out there that's thinking about getting into wanting to be super strong. They're trying to build up their strength. Is there any books that they should read or any principles or guidelines, like say three guidelines or something that you would inst- want to instill in that person? For one, take your time. It's, it's, it's not <laughs> try to walk to the strength. Don't run to it. Just take your time. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's going to come be patient as possible and just kind of move forward from there. Uh, two is going to be learn as much as you possibly can not just from the strength aspect or from the movement aspect, you know, learn about your body, pay attention to your body. Like it's important to kind of log how you feel after, you know, doing a certain program or whatever the case is and understand that not every program or every, every, every training program is going to be for you. Just, you know, find what works best for you. And the three, don't be hardheaded. Jesus, people who are first starting off are pretty damn hardheaded and they think they know it all. And that's, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have been there. Hell, I've been there before, but yep. there's things you're going to come across that you're going to come across on that journey. That's going to humble you and put you in your place basically. And so start talking to people who know more than you or know things that are just different from what you know. So you have a much more well-rounded understanding of how strength works. Uh, you want to give your any social media uh, handles in case anybody wants to jump on your accounts and check out what you're doing? Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm at Ray Bailey Coaching on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, I haven't posted in a little while. Oh, <laughs> uh, but. I am on there, so I do try to post some relatively some useful content and kind of talk about a little bit about recovery and stuff like that. So, yeah, tune in. And you can also catch Ray on our live stick mobility classes. Uh, so you, you've been doing the Saturday classes predominantly, so we thank you for that. Appreciate it, brother. And so Absolutely. you can catch him there. If you miss him on the live streams, uh, we do transfer those over to YouTube, so our YouTube channel. Uh, stick mobility tv you can catch his workouts there also the 45 minute stick mobility workouts so that's another place that you can catch ray at also so uh thanks for joining us brother we appreciate it man thank you very much and uh we look forward to having you back on very soon i appreciate it man thank you guys all right man talk to you later all right man peace